Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are revisiting the topic of justification by faith. More astonishments abound. So in our first season of podcasting, we did do an episode on justification by faith, the best thing in the worst words. So go back and have a listen if you haven't already. And of course, faith has come up regularly in our episode on Romans, more recently on Galatians. In our last episode, we talked about faith in its original Greco-Roman setting and what Christianity did to transform the notion of fides or pistis. So now in this episode, we're going to get back to exactly the question of why it is that faith justifies or rectifies or sets things right between us and God, and who is the active agent, and who is the passive recipient, and all these many and interesting questions. So Dad, I think we should start by having a quick rundown of what is probably to our listeners a well-known recent theological controversy over exactly the phrase, the faith or faith well, let's say the faith of Christ, pistis Christu, which in English comes out as the faith of Christ, which is as ambiguous in English as it is in Greek, because it's not clear if that means faith in Christ, like people placing their faith in Christ, or Christ's own faith, or there's an added problem that maybe pistis in Greek means something more like faithfulness or fidelity, so it would actually be describing a quality about Christ that has nothing whatsoever to do with us. And this has been a huge point of contention between the so-called new perspective on Paul and classical Lutherans, so why don't you take it away? Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, but I think I want to dispute that last point that you just made um, I think this controversy about Pistis Christo uh, cuts in a lot of different directions. Uh, for example, one of the founders of the new perspective, James Dunn, holds to the objective genitive interpretation of the phrase Pistis Christ as faith in Christ. Um, and uh, one of the champions of the alternative apocalyptic interpretation of Paul who would be J. Lewis Martin that we've talked about a number of times, also holds to the subjective genitive interpretation of Pistis Christo, Christ's own faithfulness to death, even death on a cross, in the words of the Philippians hymn. So, and then you also have the phenomenon, Sarah, that conservative Catholics and Arminian evangelicals are really into the imputative, forensic understanding of the genitive as faith in Christ because they attribute the faith in Christ to a human work of accepting or receiving or um, following Christ in some way. Faith is, you know, um, um, the, the human response to the offer of grace in Christ. And you have that among conservative Catholics and among uh, more Arminian uh, evangelicals. So I think this controversy cuts in a lot of different directions. It is true that some of the American uh, Lutheran theologians of an existentialist tendency have uh, maintained the objective genitive faith in Christ uh, with the fingers crossed over against the Catholics and the evangelicals that faith is itself a gift of God by the Holy Spirit. 
Um, and why they so ferociously resist the interpretation of this interesting phrase as Christ's own faith or faithfulness is something of a mystery to me. Because when um, Richard Hayes wrote his first great book on this, The Faith of Jesus Christ, he was pointing out that this, what well, the attractiveness of this reading of the phrase as a subjective genitive is that it connects the saving work of Christ to the story about Christ, to notions of Christ's faithful obedience to God as the basis for his vindication uh, on Easter morn, according to the Philippians hymn, the obedience, the loyalty, uh, the the act of uh, um, Christ's own obedience uh, all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, and the prayer, not my will, but your will be done, and the expressions of, of dying faith in the quotation from Psalm 22 uh, in Matthew and Mark, but in John and in Luke, the ex uh, expression of faith, into your hands I commit my spirit, it is finished. So in all these ways, the gospel narrative of Jesus presents him as a figure uh, uh, who uh, is truly the author and pioneer of, of faith, of our faith. He is one who himself displays faith. But again, this is resisted from the side of certain kinds of conservative Catholics, especially that this diminishes the deity of Christ, that that. In the, in the Thomistic understanding that faith is a deficient form of knowledge, uh, an inadequate cognition, to attribute faith to Christ would be a, a smear upon his perfect omniscience and divinity. And so it's not possible theologically or Christologically to certain kinds of, um, of um, conservative Catholics. And I would probably say the same also for certain kinds of conservative evangelicals that attributing uh, faith uh, to, to the incarnate Son of God diminishes his deity. Well, that is an extraordinary mirror's nest of issues. <laughs> we will do what we can to disentangle them. So I think before we go on, why don't you define more precisely objective genitive and subjective genitive, because it all turns on this grammatical distinction. Well, maybe. At least this, this is the way it's been debated between these two forms um, of, um, of, um, of the genitive case. Now, remember, the genitive case, also in English, usually indicates possession, like we could say the podcast of Sarah and Paul. That's uh, the possession, the, the podcast is owned uh, as, as the work and property of Sarah and Paul. That's a genitive uh, puts one noun, podcast, in relationship to other nouns, Sarah and Paul, in a relationship of possession. Right. And in English, we usually do this with the word of, or we use an apostrophe S, or occasionally an S apostrophe. But in Greek and many other languages, it goes by the ending tacked onto the word. and we, By the inflection. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I learned uh, to pronounce Greek in North Carolina, so my, my pronunciations of endings are different from yours. <laughs> so just, just in case listeners are confused by that. Okay. Proceed now. Okay. Well, you know, here a good way to illustrate this is the expression love of God. The love of God is poured into our hearts. Uh, by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, Paul writes in Romans. 
Now, what does love of God, that's a genitive expression that puts one noun, love, in relationship to another noun, God. What does God's love mean here? Does it mean, as Luther thought, God's love for us, bearing witness that we are indeed the children of God? Or, as Augustine took it, does it mean that God inspires or infuses into us God's own love for God? so that by the gift of the Spirit, the believer comes to participate in God's own love for God. Uh, And that is the the beginning of the believer's true righteousness and sanctification. That's the difference between uh, uh, two different interpretations of a genitive case, God's love for us or God's love for God. Couldn't it also mean our love for God? The love of God has been like the Holy Spirit has enabled us to love God. Wouldn't that be another reading? Yeah, precisely by the divine spirit, who's who uh, primordially and ontologically is God's love for God being infused into our hearts so that it also cr- makes us lovers of God. I see. Well, I think this proves right here that there the, the genitive is subject to many different interpretations. Okay. Yeah, and you know, and naturally, a lot of Christian piety would say, "Well, why, why worry about this ambiguity? Can't it just be both? Doesn't God's God's love for us inspire in us love for God?" And I think it's the same thing often with the phrase "faith of Christ." Does this say something about Jesus Christ, whose faith or faithfulness saves us? Or does it say something about those who believe in him, whose faith saves them? Well, you know, again, a lot of people would hear this controversy and say, why can't it just mean both? Christ's faithfulness, of course, is the act of God that saves us, and it saves us when we appropriate it or make it our own, and thus, by extension, it's saving faith, faith in the faithfulness of Christ and God in Christ to us while we were weak and yet enemies. So, in any case, this erupted into this great big proxy war. (laughs) And it was a proxy war theologically uh, between those who wanted to uh, lift up a, a corporate and participationist understanding of justification That would be the subjective genitive emphasizing Christ's own faith or faithfulness. And those wanting to emphasize an individual and forensic interpretation of justification as God's offering in Christ grace to those who are willing to receive and accept it. Uh, And this... uh, Controversy has raged, Sarah, now for 30 or 40 years. I was introduced to it as a graduate student, though not with the full awareness of all these implications by my teacher, J. Lewis Martin. I've recently read um, a book edited by Michael Byrd and Preston Sprinkle, The Faith of Jesus Christ, Exegetical, Biblical, and Theological Studies. And uh, that's what's kind of, uh, kind of, renewed my interest in the importance of this debate. In my first academic book, Paths Not Taken, 
I sided with Karl Barth, arguing that the Reformation doctrine of justification by faith already in the 16th century fell into hopeless conundrums, and that uh, uh, operias, and the most basic of these is the one that's expressed in the Lutheran Catholic antithesis. The Lutheran said faith only, and the Catholic said faith working through love. Uh, now, do we have an either-or choice here? Well, with a lot of parsing, I suppose we could still argue that faith alone justifies, but faith that does not become active in love uh, is false faith and therefore not true faith which justifies. So you could kind of parse the contradiction that way uh, from a Lutheran point of view. Um, and of course, from a Catholic point of view, you would say that genuine love is always inspired, first of all, by the mystery uh, of, of Christ active in the sacraments, uh, showing forth the love of God and so forth. But I argued that all of these psychological interpretations of how justification is supposed to work in a so-called order of salvation are argued on the plane of anthropology. What happens to human beings? that can be designated as saving or justifying faith. And you can't get out of all of these aporias or conundrums if you limit the argument to a, a, an argument about what makes true Christian faith anthropologically or psychologically. And that the only way you can resolve this is by elevating the discussion to the level of Christology. In other words, why is it that faith in Jesus Christ saves? What it is about Jesus Christ that makes faith into the saving relationship? Okay, well, wow, that was that was an extraordinary number of things. So let me see if I can um, um, parse some of these out um, for the sake of the listeners as well as for myself. So first of all, let us start with the hopeless conundrums in the 16th century. So is this charge leveled against Luther? Luther at a certain point in his career? Is it the subsequent confessional documents like the formula that tried to codify Luther? Is it the same thing as the same kind of problem as trying to force a biblical verse to say one thing and one thing only for dogmatic reasons and the same was done to Luther like help us first sort out what exactly the charges that's being leveled against the 16th century yeah this is Ali Pekavinio's book on justification in the 16th century uh, which is a very valuable study but I can simplify it to something I think we've mentioned previously in a podcast in the Augsburg Confession and even in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Melanchthon uh, uh, reiterates the, the early language of Luther, that faith regenerates, that faith is the new birth, faith is regeneration. And this is ubiquitous in the early Luther. Just think of the preface uh, to Romans uh, as a famous passage. Uh, uh, like birth, it is passive. It's something that happens to it. But also like birth, being birthed, we come to life, come to new life. And so faith is regeneration. And as this passively induced new creation or new birth, faith is um, the uh, immediate 
work of the Holy Spirit through the Word. So it's already also sanctification. Uh, if it's the work of the Holy Spirit, it's the work of sanctification. The gift of faith is itself sanctifying. And the later distinction, justification first, sanctification later, is nonsensical in this early context. So uh, without getting down into the weeds with a lot of proof texts, let me just leave that as an assertion. You can read the uh, Augsburg Confession, the Apology for yourself, and see their sources in uh, uh, the 1520s writings of Luther about faith, and see that it is the case that faith is regeneration. But 50 years later, after all of these anthropological conflicts about the order of salvation that erupted in the 50 years between the Augsburg Confession in 1530 and the Formula of Concord in 1580, uh, the formulators had to put an end to this strife, which was in danger of destroying Lutheranism as such. And they forced a solution, which in effect said, when Luther and Melanchthon said that stuff in the 1520s, they were speaking imprecisely. And now we know clearly that righteousness is ours solely by imputation, solely by the extrinsic judgment of the divine judge who looks upon faith and credits it as righteousness and only then subsequently sends the Holy Spirit. So that's the origins of the strictly forensic imputational model of justification which cuts out the Holy Spirit, cuts out the effectiveness of imputation as a divine word of promise that effects what it says, does what it says, and uh, leaves mysteriously begging the question of how does the terrified sinner ever have the faith to call upon God for mercy in the first place? That, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I'm thinking now of your book, Luther for Evangelicals, because what you've just described in the formula sounds so much to, more to me like the source of the kind of serious problems with faith that I remember hearing from evangelicals when I was at seminary, which I always found utterly flummoxing because I was a Luther reader more than a formula reader. And let me just say uh, for the formula, it does say, if you really want to understand this, go back and read Dr. Luther's Galatians commentary. So by all means, <laughs> means. Go back and read Luther's Galatians commentary. It does a better job. But I, I can see that, I mean, the, the, the practical problems of a live, of a, a living church, you know, trying, trying to function. And th this happens to every movement from the early church to the Pentecostals is that, um, so, okay. So we've already talked about the problem of, of faith as defective knowledge. So let's just set that aside. We've already talked at length in other episodes about this, but then if you, if faith is not defective knowledge, um, or propositional knowledge generally, then it has to somehow naturally start talking about faith as an emotional or interpersonal state. And so, you know, the, the job of the preacher is to generate in you this emotional state or this, this personal relationship with Christ that you come to feel in some way through the preaching or whatever. And of course, any any person or movement that does any amount of living in faith is eventually going to stumble up against the problem of, well, 
do I really believe this? Like, can I, can I like take it out and examine it like a document and say, well, is this really true? And, and do I really believe what I'm saying? And do I really feel it? And then things happen. You have crises, whether intellectual ones or, or life ones, grief or heartbreak or whatever that make the whole thing fall into question. And then, you know, have you, have you therefore lost everything, including God along with your faith? So that's a problem on one side. And then on, on the flip side from, let's say, maybe the preacher's perspective, if you say that the word is effective, whether it's the baptismal word or the preached word, and then you see a apparent evidence lack of any real change, regeneration in the life of the person, then it is hard to avoid the conclusion, well, maybe the word isn't effective. And that takes you either into needing revivals or needing double predestination. So there you go. The entire historical problem of Protestantism unfolded <laughs> right out from the initial premise. Okay. That's right. All right. So so if that's the, the whole kind of swirling problematic, why is it that the faith of Christ has now become the, the site at which the proxy war is battled? Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, I don't know particularly why this is the case, um, except to say that uh, Protestantism has generally thought that it's founded on pure Paul, pure Paulinism, and to have its reading of Paul challenged this way. But again, like I pointed out, this cuts in a lot of directions. There's certain ways of reading Paul from a conservative Catholic perspective that would come to the same kinds of conclusions, that there's it's important that the integrity of the antecedent human person have something to contribute to its own salvation. I mean, this is basically the idea here, uh, whether it's in Protestant or, or Catholic forms. Uh, but let's just go to Paul for a few minutes here to talk about this. The strange uh, genitive construction, faith of Christ, uh, is not common in Paul. It only appears in, I think, seven passages. Uh, but it's found in Romans, Galatians, and Philippians. And what's notable about that is that it occurs in these letters where Paul is advocating or defending the doctrine of justification. That's the first thing to notice. And that it appears in the passages in which Paul is explicating justification by faith. Now let me just read a couple of these passages from the King James Version, which translated this Greek quite literally. Uh, Galatians 2.16, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. That's Galatians 2.16. Um, uh, Galatians 3.22, again, the King James Version. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Okay, one, uh, two more, Romans 3.22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by the faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. And finally, Philippians 3. And be found in Christ, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, 
but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So the old King James Version translated the Greek into English quite literally here. And of course, that's that's question begging because the genitive is ambiguous. And so how do we determine the meaning of the ambiguous genitive? And here, the advocates of the subjective genitive reading, Sarah, argue that there's a redundancy that's expressed in all these passages, namely that the expression faith of Christ is immediately exposited as to the benefit of those human beings who believe. So the faith of Christ is immediately interpreted as beneficial salutary, important, significant for those who believe. So I think this excludes a couple of uh, misunderstandings. Uh, If you're trying to understand Paul's language here, it cannot be that Paul is trying to abolish, uh, that that, uh, the advocates of this subjective genitive are trying to disqualify, diminish, or even abolish Paul's summons that human beings believe. Uh, it's rather that faith of Christ grounds, uh, elicits, forms, creates the human faith in those who believe. The faith of Christ is formative, creative, generative uh, for those human beings who come to believe. So the point is that even if you were to strictly translate it as the faithfulness of Jesus, so that that particular genitive construction had nothing to do with us, the fact that Paul always appends to that another clause, which says this is for the sake of the believers, the faithers in 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 God, in Christ, means that nevertheless there is a, a direct and um, non-negotiable impact of Christ's faithfulness on our faith or faithfulness. Right. Now, and if you actually ground the relationship that way, what it excludes is that the faith of believers is their contribution to the saving event of Christ. It's the other way around. The saving event of Christ reaches out to and creates the faith in believers. Uh, As I think uh, an old Lutheran theologian of the previous generation, Dillenberger, once put it, that God does not justify us on account of our human faith in Christ as if this were the causal factor that triggered God's approval. That would turn our faith into a, a, a special work the ultimate good work, right, right. Right, and it would change the good news into a good deal. Yeah, yeah. No, this is. I have heard this so much, so much from from uh, people we know who were raised in a Lutheran t- tradition that actually did offer exactly that good deal, which is is you summon up faith, and then God will justify you after the fact. And this is the people, as I said, the evangelicals I've known who have just been crushed under their inability to manufacture intellectually or emotionally the kind of state that they were supposed to in order to get justified, and ended up having them. They would often know it, Princeton anyway. They would become extreme Bartians to the point that like they were you know it was it was just a, a declarative deal everyone was saved it didn't matter what you believed one way or another <laughs> right, which right. I don't think Bart would be crazy about either but um but that's I think that's that's super helpful I just to give one more little seminary story here I 
I remember very distinctly this day in one of my graduate seminars where I suddenly realized that justification by faith is not a second article doctrine. It's a third article doctrine. And that the second article is of the faithfulness of Christ who had faith in God, even as he went to the cross and thereby offered a universal atonement. And it's only in the third article that we get to the justifying work of the spirits in, in reaching us so that we have faith in what happened in the second article, which of course was there in my catechism all along, but in in that particular setting, justification was the second article doctrine. And I remember even as I tried to say it, I got all these curious looks like, what does that mean? And I was like, I don't know yet, but I'm pretty sure. (laughs) I'm pretty sure justification should be in the third article. (laughs) It took me years and years more to unpack all of that. Right. Yeah, and of course, one of the reasons why that was obscure to you is because of uh, the disappearance of the Holy Spirit in modern Protestantism and its reemergence in the Pentecostal movement, which is very scary and alienating for those kinds of Protestants from whom the Holy Spirit has functionally disappeared. But that's <laughs> yeah. getting getting off topic here, right? Right, uh, right. So, yeah, I think Dillenberger's little aphorism was that God does not justify us on account of our faith, but surely for the sake of our faith. And I think that gets Paul's idea here very, very nicely. Yeah, I I would even go so far as to character characterize faith rather as God's success in finally breaking through to you and that it is a success that needs to be repeated as we go through the ongoing battle in the larger war of our lives. So rather than saying faith is my success in convincing my brain or my heart to be in a certain state, it's actually God's success in his gospel through his word and his spirit coming to me and seizing me back out of the clutches of sin, death, and the devil. And I think if you characterize it that way, it matters very very much that the believer believes because it makes all the difference to your life, whether or not you believe this word that has been offered to you, but it doesn't make it either your work or your victory or something you can hold over against God. It's totally a receptive thing of your, your taking passively what God has been trying and trying and trying to give to you, which I think is very much the, the New Testament approach. Yeah, I think it constitutes a brand new subjectivity, uh, that faith is um, a divine work in the sense that um, it it is what Paul calls new creation. Tis no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is not mysticism. This is Paul's account uh, that the word concerning Christ, the gospel, Uh, is the vehicle of the risen Christ's real presence, who uh, immediately works together with his own spirit uh, to constitute a new subjectivity, which is called the believer. Uh, uh, You know, and I, I think one of the other reasons some Lutherans resist this is because they fear the specter of Karl Barth, seeping into the purity of Lutheran theology. (laughs) Now, uh, uh, I actually think Barth is in some ways a better reader of Luther than the existentialist Lutherans of the 20th century. And towards the end of his life in Church Dogmatics 2.2, this is what he wrote about faith and its relationship to the faith of the Son of God. I want to read this quote. 
He was commenting on just that passage, Galatians 2.20. Quote, the fact that I live in the faith of the Son of God, in my faith in him, has its basis in the fact that he himself, the Son of God, first believed for me. And so all that remains for me to do is let my eyes rest on him, which really means to let my eyes follow him. This following is my faith. But the great work of faith has already been done by the one whom I follow in my faith, even before I believe, even if I no longer believe, in such a way that he is always, as Hebrews 12.2 puts it, the originator and completion of our faith. In such a way, therefore, that everything, every beginning and fresh beginning of our faith has its only starting point in him, indeed the only basis of its awakening, end quote. So you said that, I mean, this is, this is why you would prefer a Christological solution to the faith problem over an anthropological solution. And clearly Bart sees that and it talks about the anthropological dimension, but it's primarily, faith is primarily a Christological reality in which we then participate. But you also alluded to the fact that for certain factions in this dispute, it's offensive to talk about Christ as having faith or needing, needing somehow to be in that state of, of faithful. So what what is the, maybe what should we say there, what is the Christological controversy about faith that we're, we're finally verging on here? Well, I think, of course, Sarah, it goes back to the Lutheran contention for the unity of Christ's person, uh, that there's not two sons, one of Mary and one of God, who are cohabitating somehow. And when the deficient part needs to be done, the Son of God says to the Son of Mary, go do that part. And when the perfect stuff gets needs to get done, the Son of Mary says to the Son of God, "Okay, that's your job." <laughs> it, I mean that that it's such an. Uh, uh, Thank you, Pope Leo. <laughs> yeah, I guess a, a certain reading of Leo, anyway, right? That it's a, uh, it's a problem here, and that we really have to say something. And here again, I think Karl Barth was on the cusp of of figuring this out in the same volume, uh, no, in the volume four of the, uh, part one of the Church Dogmatics, Bart wrote about humility and obedience uh, in the eternal Son of God. That, G yes, Jesus is God, but he is God in the way of being Son. Just as the, uh, the Lord of the Old Testament is God, but in the way of being the Father of this particular Son. Uh, this strong Trinitarian personalism uh, personally qualifies the, um, the having and the disposing of divine predicates like omnipotence and omniscience and all those kinds of things. So it, it's not a contradiction to divine sonship to be humble, to be trusting, to be entrusted, and so forth. It's also not contradictory to divine fatherhood to entrust his reconciling work uh, to the willingness of his incarnate son to go the way of the cross. There, as we talked about with Teresa Morgan, there's, there's these interrelationships of, of relational trust that are, can only be exposited in a Trinitarian and communal ecclesiological way. 
So, okay, so I, I can totally buy um, the, the humility and obedience within God argument, but it seems to me that the problem here is more like the imperfect knowledge of the son is, is the real problem, the human son. And therefore, if, if there's a unity of the person, then by implication, the divine son, even though you have, like Jesus saying, nobody knows the time, not even the son, only the father, which has always caused no end of uh, <laughs> dogmatic problems for the doctrine of God. So, so how do you then address that concern, whether it's the Platonist or Thomistic understanding that faith is defective knowledge or what it might suggest about the true divinity of the son if he has to exercise faith, whether it's faith by not having complete knowledge or faith of maybe not knowing for sure if he will be vindicated in resurrection when he's there screaming on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right. Yeah. That, Sarah, that topic deserves a whole podcast in itself. <laughs> it really does. It, it, it's behind the uh, kenosis controversies of the 19th century. And uh, that's a sticky wicket. And I, I really don't think we want to fall into a, uh, an inadequate discussion uh, of that kind, kind of thing. But let me just say this. Okay, good. Something. Just say something for our poor listeners. When Jesus says that's not for the Son, only for the Father, that can be parsed as that's not part of of the Son's mission uh, in his incarnate life to reveal such things because he defers that to faith in the plan and purpose of God the Heavenly Father. Um, let me just say at that point that, that that's a way of saying, I mean, the problem here is that People interpret this as some kind of uh, um, uh, uh, corny Christian apologetics. The New Testament clearly indicates the finitude and humanity of Jesus. He was never really God in the flesh because there were things he didn't know. And now you're trying to cover up this ignorance <laughs> and such of Jesus and so forth. Uh, on the contrary, what I want to affirm is that it's not a contradiction to deity the deity of the Son, uh, to be fully incarnate as the finite human being, Jesus, and that there's really not even a distinction personally between the earthly Jesus and the eternal Son of God. They are one and the same person. So that's what I want to affirm. So this is another case of Christ, the crisis of metaphysics. So if if you have a problem with the incarnate divine son, not knowing everything, having to exercise faith and so forth, then the problem is your, your unbaptized metaphysics that you have imported into your Christology. And that's where you need to get to work. Yeah. And again, we have to learn what God is from the revelation of who God is. And that's just a basic principle of theology. We don't come to the Bible with our preconceived ideas of divinity and say, does this stack up or not? It's exactly the other way around. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, um, uh, back again to the subject of the faith of Christ. Uh, I want to mention here that this is... uh, something that I've taken very seriously in my systematic theology. I devote the first section of my work to the creation of the theological subject, uh, where I argue that my personal faith is a participation in the faith, active and faithful love of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, 
This makes other kinds of Lutherans nervous, that you're getting into Neoplatonism and uh, the metaphysics of participation and all this Neoplatonism and all this kind of stuff. Dad, you are no Neoplatonist. They shouldn't worry about this. Yeah, I know. I, I want to just say this explicitly, though. Participation in Christ. Being in Christ is Pauline. <laughs> let, let me say that again. Being in Christ is Pauline. And it's also Luther's joyful exchange that we're talking about here. No Plotinus necessary. No, no Plotinus necessary. Participation is not a metaphysical principle, but it's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings us, Luther says, into the church so that the Holy Spirit can preach Christ to us. And preaching Christ to us, he can form Christ in us so that we now are constituted as new creatures whose being is in Christ. All of this reality of Christian to be uh, Christian existence uh, is to be understood as the Spirit incorporating us into the body of Christ, where we are formed by Christ to be his people in the world. And this participation is therefore a historical and social reality. Again, that is the metaphysic. It's, it's unfolding history and unfolding humanity in time, space, generations, relatedness. Yeah, and I think, of course, if you're really a Platonist, you want to affirm this dynamism that the divine unfolds itself in a cascading exitus and then reintegrates itself in a, a, a return or reditus back to the one. Uh, so Neoplatonism, like Hegel, is a kind of historicizing of being. Uh, away from the platonic idea of being, being uh, timeless, spaceless self-identity. There's this dynamic idea that being unfolds itself in a series of becomings so that there is a multitude of ideas or images of God in the cosmic world and that wherever one genuinely adheres cognitively or effectively to these images or concepts, one is participating in the divine life. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about at all. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that would be what John Milbank is talking about, I suppose, uh, but it's not what I'm talking about. The reality of Christian existence is, according to Barth, to be explained by the Spirit as the power of participation. Through the Spirit, the Christian is caught up in the history of Jesus. She participates in Jesus' own faithful obedience, and the event of this participation launches her into a new freedom, the freedom to be faithful to God as God is faithful to her. I'm quoting from that book there uh, that I mentioned in the beginning on uh, the faith of Christ. All right, well then... What's the problem? What objection could anyone possibly mount at this point to that reading of the faith of Christ? Well, um, I don't think it's, I hope, very little objection. <laughs> um, um, I, I, I think that this is um, a discovery that in trying to 
explain justification by faith in Galatians, Philippians, and Romans, Paul is driven to this rather innovative language of a genitive of the subject, Christ's own faith or faithfulness, to explain how it is that faith justifies, that human faith justifies. And this explanation is that human faith is a participation in a new creative uh, sociality. Uh, let me quote from Teresa Morgan one more time from the last episode. This is a fuller explanation of her meaning. Paul affirms that God justifies one out of the faith of Jesus. Grammatically, it is very strained to translate this as the one who has faith in Jesus. It is slightly less strained to understand it as the one who is righteous because of the faith of Jesus. Leaving open whether the faith of Jesus is towards God or towards human beings. So what is her resolution of this uh, uh, notion that God justifies one out of the faith of Jesus? She writes, God trusts Christ by implication, to act as an expiation for human sins. Christ is faithful and obedient towards God, very possibly also towards the human beings whose acquittal he makes possible. I say more than possible, I'm interjecting here, because he loved me and gave himself for me. So he entrusts uh, uh, himself uh, to the human beings who crucify him. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And consequently, she now continuing the quote, human beings put their trust, probably both in God and Christ, through the righteousness of God, the bilateral faith of Christ, and their own faith, the faithful are made righteous. Paul uses faith in Galatians to refer the relationship of trust-belief between God, Christ, and the faithful, the pledge or assurance secured by Christ, which binds them together, the bond formed by the pledge, the community formed by the bond. Call it, end quote, call it the New Testament, call it the uh, Israel of God, call it the beloved community. So again, we see very, very strongly there the importance of the social and interpersonal dimension of faith moving in all these different directions and creating all these kind of connections. It's that, that ecstatic um, language that Luther uses in the freedom of the Christian about being outside of oneself. That's very good, Sarah. And now, you know, now let's, uh, let's turn to some questions that you have about all this. And um, I think your first one points to a subtle but important difference between Luther and Barth that I'd like to talk about a little bit. Okay, well, so the, I mean, the ongoing question, and you, you alluded to this earlier with Lutheran Catholic um, disputes, is why can't works justify? And I think in a, a naive approach, most people say, well, you can say that you believe in Jesus, but until you actually act on it, you know, how do we know it isn't just empty words? And indeed, it could just be empty words. So why is it that Luther insists so strongly that it is not works that justify? So, so I'll, I'll give my 
my answer and then you can you can bring in the subtle distinction from Bart. The way I read Luther is that the problem with works is not that they aren't good. They are good or that a Christian life shouldn't issue in them. A Christian life should issue in good works. The problem is that for Luther in the end works are still something external to yourself and there can be a way that a an ongoing sinner can actually avoid the final and true encounter with God by constantly keeping it externalized. I think that's the probably the correct root of some more extreme reformed fears about rites and rituals and sacraments that they are external realities. Now for Luther, the, the way that you have the saving encounter of faith with Christ is through something external to yourself, like the word and the sacraments coming to you. But in the end, the reason that it's faith that justifies and not your good works that justify is because the faith is actually the success, as I said before, of the contact between holy God and sinful human that transforms their relationship between the, between them. And Luther is such a, I would say in this respect, truly a psychologically astute study of the religious soul to realize how much religion is actually dodging encounter with God rather than <laughs> final, finally getting to it. And of course, he will always say that true faith, the true encounter between soul and God will issue in good works, but those good works are always external and therefore they're never the source, the cause, or even the proof of justification. Yeah, very good, Sarah. Yeah, uh, This raises a big issue uh, in the new perspective on Paul, which goes back to Christopher Stendhal's attack on the introspective consciousness of the West, which I think is quite misguided in many uh, respects. Um, the issue here is the, the, uh, the interiority of faith, faith ex, ex corde, out of, out of the heart. Um, now, we know in the Hebrew Bible that the heart is the seat of the person, uh, and it's the source um, uh, of um, the motivating source uh, of human behavior. But the heart is also hidden behind the superficial outward appearance, and the heart can conceal itself behind the works that it does. It can be concealed. That's why Scripture always talks about the God of the prophets, uh, who is not fooled by human appearances, who searches and judges the heart. That's why uh, the book of Acts makes a point of saying that God is no respecter of faces. And it picks up the pr prophetic idea that God looks behind the public face and sees into the motivations of behavior. What else is the Sermon on the Mount but a teaching that the Heavenly Father sees in secret and knows in secret? right? And is not fooled by human behavior. And when Christopher Stendhal blamed Augustine and Luther for this introspective consciousness of the West, he forgot that Luther and Augustine were formed as monks chanting the Hebrew Psalms day in and day out for years and years and years. Whatever interiority uh, you can ascribe to Augustine and Luther, you can ascribe to the Psalms that they prayed and that formed their uh, self-examination, uh, Coram Deo, bef before God. There's always anti-Judaism lurking at the back of these things, and that to me is proof once again. Yeah, yeah, I think that the prob the real problem of interiority that these people are putting their finger on, and this I agree with, 
as you were talking about your evangelical friends at Princeton. There's this kind of scrupulous scrupulosity, this scrupulous examination of the self. Do I really have faith? Do I really believe? When I say the creed, are they just words? Do I really mean it? Can I really <laughs> believe that he was born of a virgin and that on the third day he rose from the dead? I, I don't know if I have faith, you know, and all that kind of introspection is the exact opposite of Paul and I think Luther's interpretation of Paul that faith is not introspection, it is extraspection. It's looking outside of ourselves to the external word that comes to us telling a good report of a true son of David uh, who lived and uh, loved and uh, to the end for us and all and, and triumphed on our behalf, right? Well, and that's why justification by faith has to be third article and not second article because faith is not the good news. Faith is the reception of the good news. So scrupulosity becomes a problem if faith is actually the source and hinge and linchpin and cause of your salvation. But if it's the reception of your salvation, then to have some doubts about your own faith are certainly unpleasant and undesirable. We've all been there. But it doesn't mean that the entire thing is lost. It means that the faithfulness of Jesus is something that can still be proclaimed to you to sustain you until your fractured and difficult and warring interiority can, you know, climb back onto the ship again or, you know, something like that. Yeah, and here I'd like to just mention what I think is a subtle but significant difference between Luther and Bart. Bart is famous for his so-called ontology of act. Uh, and basically, this is his kind of baptized version of existentialism, that there is no pre-existing human essence or substance, that a human being is what a human being does. Uh, and in fact, God is what God does. The ontology of act goes all the way up and all the way down for Bart. Uh, and he's, I think, in some ways, very important with his ontology of act. He's trying to break out of the stranglehold of substance metaphysics and uh, all the constraints that have put on perceiving the living God of the Bible, who was uh, uh, revealed in his act and uh, reveals by acting and so forth and so on. I think that's all very good. But where this gets to be problematic uh, is that Bart is also responding to the socialist critique of Lutheranism in the 19th century that accused Luther of inculcating passivity in the masses. Uh, Thomas Mann is famous for this. Uh, of course, he's early 20th century. Uh, uh, that uh, Lutheran, Lutheran religion uh, uh, robbed the workers of revolutionary power and made them religiously accept their suffering in this veil of tears and put their hope in heaven for pie in the sky and the sweet by and by. Right, because the communist state is so much better than that. But yeah, yes, well, okay. That's, okay. That's yeah. another story. So Bart is, <laughs> Bart is reacting to all that, and he wants very much to affirm, like Luther, that faith uh, generates a new life. That's why in the quote I read from him, Faith rests in Christ, and this resting, Bart immediately adds, is following Christ. 
So the transition between faith as passive reception into faith as active is is uh, very important for Bart. And uh, so Bart loves the Luther quote, faith is a living, mighty, active thing, does all, hopes all, right, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but he's not so keen on Luther's vita passiva, Luther's faith as a pure receptivity, the receiving of another person into my life uh, in the joyful exchange that fundamentally reconstitutes my subjectivity. Uh, and I think this is a point of tension between Luther and Bart. Uh, uh, but I, that's I just want to register that. Uh, we can talk about that at length some other time. The passive life. All right, that's interesting. Then let's just get to one more before we finish up here. We we're going to talk about imputation, but I think we better save that for another time again. The, the the other question I often hear is why isn't it that love justifies? And this often comes out of a, a reading of First Corinthians thirteen, where Paul talks about faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, and hope and faith will pass away. So it seems that in a, a Lutheran reading of 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 scripture and and Christian. Christianity, that faith is the ultimate thing, and there seems to be less attention given to love, especially love toward God. Um, and I think that would kind of probably be at the root of Catholic critiques, and, and when Orthodox actually pay attention, <laughs> maybe that would be their critique as well. And um, so here, here's my attempt at, a, at an answer. I think the, the issue is really that faith and hope, uh, as Paul correctly asserts here, are indeed the qualities of the embattled life, that the these are exactly apocalyptic virtues for a territory that is still under dispute between God and the powers and principalities and sin, death, and the devil. And so it is precisely in this difficult and contested world, world that it is extremely difficult, let's say impossible, for love to reach to its um, maximum. If there is even such a thing. There isn't, actually. I'll get to that in a second. And so I think one of the reasons that faith is what sets things right with God is because faith is the beginning. It's not actually the maximization of your relationship with God. It is getting back reconnected to God after the... the uh, um, the horrors of this earth have separated you from God. And so that's why we emphasize that it is first first knowing God in faith that then sets you toward the path of being able to love God and in, in the love of God, love neighbor and self and world rightly. And I think actually in that respect, you should, and certainly as, as a Lutheran and as a fan of the doctrine of justification, have a very strong place for love. But the whole point of love is that it is infinite. There's never a point at which you have ever loved God enough. So if your justification or rectification or reconciliation with God depended on loving God, there's no way you could ever reach where you ought to be with God and therefore have their relationship start. But in fact, love is the product of the reconciliation. And in the heavenly kingdom, when the apocalyptic battle is over, there also there will be no limits. Love, love will be an infinite thing. It's the in the nature of love to be infinite. And in that context, then faith and hope will be set aside with great um, appreciation and honor for what they did for us in this life. But they will not be necessary in the way that they are necessary to us in this life. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I like that very much. And you're right that love uh, is by nature infinite because God is love. I mean, that's that's a very easy deduction to make, isn't it? Uh, and, and so the love of God is infinitely um, uh, 
challenging, and even in its temporal dimension, the love of finite creatures that is commanded of us to love them as equally as we love ourselves, as equally precious creatures of the one creator God, um, is practically infinite. Um, what I mean by that is right now, Americans um, are suffering yet another humiliation by the debacle in Afghanistan and the pathetic pictures of desperate people seeking to escape the rule of the Taliban should be afflicting all people of good conscience, I should say. And what can I do about it? What can I do about these neighbors in need? Uh, even if I want to, even if I try to, even if I send a donation to a relief agency, there's very little that I can do to fulfill the love commandment to these humiliated people who are humiliated on account of my nation's humiliating behavior. What can I do? I can only pray. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. That's a fact. That's a fact uh, even a for the person who in principle wants to love God above all and wants to love neighbor as oneself. There is a sin of omission, to use the old scholastic distinction, that is infinite in comparison to the sins of commission. Uh, so this is the afflicted conscience of Romans 7, of the true believer, uh, who knows that he or she is a divided being uh, and knows that precisely because of the infinite demand of love. So if you want to say I'm justified by my works of love, all I can say is good luck, sister. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, that, that was a painful conclusion to that meditation. <laughs> but, uh, but I think it does make the point why, why it cannot be works or love that, that justify or set rights with God to begin with. But certainly, again, that they will flow out. Uh, but within, and I think what you made the, such a poignant um, allusion to there is that there are real painful restrictions on the expression of love in this lifetime and that that is part of the suffering that we endure and part of the the promise of the pie in the sky by and by is that love will not have to be restricted there the way that it is here no their love is genuinely infinite and yeah. infinitely to be discovered and explored yes yeah, yeah absolutely that's why we will not get bored in heaven in case anyone's ever worried about that <laughs> <laughs> right. Because heaven is a social reality, right? That's Teresa Morgan's point. It's a new covenant of reciprocal multilateral relationships uh, of trust. Uh, and that's why it's all grounded for us. It really is grounded. The good reason we trust this way is because of the gospel's narrative of the faith of Christ. Yes. Amen. And I would just like to say for the record, this is I speaking and not the Lord, but all dogs will go to heaven. I can't say for sure about the cats. <laughs> 
All right, that that's kind of a qualified universalism, huh? <laughs> Very qualified. All right, well, next time on the show for help in exercising faith, hope, and love in this world, our topic will be evangelical hagiography or saints for sinners. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.